Hi. So, there was no Myths and Legends this week, but we do have another podcast called Fictional, where we do the Myths and Legends type storytelling, but with stories that aren't Myths and Legends. Season 1 just finished up this week, and it was a lot of fun. And that means there are 11 episodes just waiting for you on that feed. Episodes like this one, our adaptation of The Time Machine by author H.G. Wells. It might be my favorite story we told on Fictional this season. So, if you like it, awesome. And there are 10 more episodes like it over on the Fictional feed. Be sure to check those out. Okay, I'll shut up now. Enjoy part one of The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. Like any great party, this one began with a bunch of Victorian British guys talking about geometry. More specifically, how geometry is wrong. They were all there. The medical doctor, the provincial mayor, the psychologist, and more. It was a veritable who's who of stock 1800s characters, off which the host could bounce his fanciful notions and Byzantine theories. It began as a discussion of basic geometry, but then somehow, it devolved into philosophical musings of traveling through time. They all had theories, but the man they, and the story, called the Time Traveler, had the strongest and most defined thoughts in the matter. No surprise there. It took everyone a bit of time to wrap their minds around it all, but the Time Traveler's logic was sound. They had learned to defy other natural edicts, They could defy gravity by riding under a balloon, after all. Why couldn't they come to defy the natural flow of time in the same way? I mean, yeah, but there are so many more questions that need to be answered before we could even approach building... Oh, oh, you're coming back with the machine. Oh, you already built it, said Philby, the only named character in the scene. The time traveler announced that yes, yes, he had. He wanted to build a time machine, but he had to build a test one first to prove that it was safe. And now... Tonight was his maiden voyage. Here it is. The time machine. The time traveler held out his hand, and the room gasped, but then became really confused. Why, why is it so small? The medical doctor sputtered. Because it's a test. It's fully functional, though, the time traveler assured them. (laughs) What is it, a machine for ants? One partygoer asked, to a room full of laughter. You see... It was 1898, and Zoolander wouldn't come out for another 100 plus years. That joke was still pretty fresh. Wait, so you built a working time machine one-tenth the size as a test? Another partygoer asked. "Mm Mm-hmm, the time traveler announced proudly. Isn't making something that much smaller on that level of scale way more difficult than just building an actual time machine? The very young man, another stock character, pointed out. It was. It took me years to build the very tiny tools necessary. Anyway, eyes on the table, everyone. I don't want to spend another two years making an unreasonably tiny time machine because you were all looking away the moment it activated. The time traveler announced and pulled out a magnifying glass and some tiny tools so we could adjust the dials. All right, everyone looking? Medical doctor, psychologist, provincial mayor, very young man, Philby? All right, let's do this. It was a ridiculous thing watching the time traveler put the tiny crystals in his tiny machine and use the tiny tools to pull the tiny lever. But what wasn't ridiculous was that it worked. There, before their eyes, the machine blinked from existence. It had gone back in time. Maybe. I'm Jason Weiser. From Bardic, this is Fictional.
Wait, did that just disappear? Mm-hmm, the time traveler said, beaming. It went back in time, or forward, but definitely one of those two. Well, it's traveling backward or forward in time. I tried to set those tiny dials, but we have to leave some room for error. Remarkable, but I do have a question, Philby said. If it's going forward in time, how come we don't see it? And if it's going backward in time, why wasn't it already in the room when we walked in? The room murmured and nodded. Philby was a smart one. That's why Philby was the named character. The time traveler rolled his eyes. It wasn't moving at the speed of normal time, dummies. It was moving faster than time forward or backward. You can't see a speeding bullet or the spokes of a wheel, but it's definitely in the room with you. Same with this thing. It's here, but it's only here for like a millisecond per minute. So it'll flash in the room occasionally, but it's largely invisible. The time traveler breathed a sigh of relief. It had worked. He remarked that he had a decade of his life wrapped up in that machine. The psychologist cocked his head. Before, the time traveler said that the tiny test time machine had only taken a couple of years to build. The time traveler chuckled and nodded. He said, yeah, and then, oh yeah. He forgot to mention, he also built a full-size time machine capable of carrying one human anywhere in time. Did they want to see the big one? The audience stood there dumbfounded. Yes, of course they would. How's that even a question? The time traveler snatched a lantern and led the small group down a dark and drafty corridor toward his lab. Behind them, on the table, the tiny time machine flashed once. A flicker, all but imperceptible to the human eye. Having molded over for about a week, the group's opinion was that the time traveler was definitely messing with them. It had been a week since he had showed them the tiny test machine, and then the much bigger, still incomplete, normal time machine. He was well known for playing pranks, and no one believed that he could travel in time. He had asked everyone to dinner, but when they arrived, they found only a note left with the servants. He had been detained, and if he wasn't back by 7pm, they should start dinner without him. It was now 7.30. Someone rang for a servant, so they could begin dinner. They heard a thumping down the hall and a labor grunt as the door handle jiggled from a struggle on the outside. Everyone agreed that it was fairly undignified for a servant to act like that when, with another grunt, the door flew open, revealing their host, just as he collapsed to the ground. The time traveler pulled himself up abruptly and looked like he had been in a boxing match, robbed, and then thrown in a cage for a month. His face was cut up and bloody, his clothes torn and tattered, and one of his shoes was dripping blood. He staggered to the table, motioning to a cup. Water! He needs water! Someone yelled. But the time traveler shook his head, and motioned frantically to another bottle. Champagne? You want champagne? The time traveler nodded, pale as death. I did it! I did it! The time traveler yelled after he downed half a bottle of champagne. I traveled in time, and it was amazing, but I'm going to refuse to talk about it until after we sit for an awkward, silent dinner. So you guys want to hear about how I traveled in time? The time traveler asked the group. Everyone sat in silence having just watched him wolf down three plates of mutton. Yes, that's why we're here. Is it time for questions? The psychologist spoke up. 
Still no, the time traveler said, holding up a finger while swallowing his last bite. I'll tell my story, but it's going to sound a whole lot like I'm lying to you, so no interruptions. The assembled group shrugged. Sure, he was probably lying to them, but if he was, he had really committed to the lie with a cut-up face and tattered clothes. Besides, if he wasn't lying, this was the greatest discovery in the history of the world. The time traveler had planned on finishing the device last week, the day after everyone was there, but it turned out one of the nickel bars was an inch too short, and so he had to take it apart, have the bar recast, and then put it back together, meaning it added a week to the production time. In fact, he had finally finished the machine at 10 a.m. this morning. He had tightened all the screws three times and checked the oil level, anxiety in the pit of his stomach growing each time. Then, as he sat in the device's pilot chair, he realized he was stalling. Why? Gripping one of the bronze levers, it felt like he had a pistol to his head, and he was steeling himself to pull the trigger. He had seen the test device, and had gone over the plan several dozen times. He knew this would work. Just not what time travel would feel like. Eventually, he decided to just do it already. The same audacity and bravado that had led to him making the time machine would have to push him past this point. With three deep breaths, he inched the lever forward and immediately pulled it back. He wasn't ready. Maybe tomorrow. But then he looked at the clock on the wall and gasped. It had been 10 a.m. when he pushed the lever. Now, it was half past three in the afternoon. Five hours had passed during that brief movement of the lever. He had done it. He had traveled in time. The now experienced time traveler glanced at the clock again, then back down at the time machine. He breathed a sigh of relief. The quick maiden voyage had blasted his fears away. He had gone five hours and survived. He looked at the levers, smiled, and pushed the lever down twice as far as he had before, then looked up to watch the world change before his eyes. Just beyond the edge of his machine, he saw his housekeeper whipping across the room, the blurs slowly turning more and more gray before they stopped altogether. With the passing of time, the room was piled high with boxes, then emptied, and then disappeared altogether as the traveler watched the skyline of London grow and change as he rocketed through the 20th century. The time traveler sat there both excited and anxious. He would get to see the world change in unimaginable ways. Yet, by the looks of people zipping past him in the 1970s, it didn't look too terribly different, and he had already gone nearly a century. Time to really go for broke. He floored the lever as far as it would go. The sun stopped zipping by with each passing day and just remained a bright streak in the sky as the sky itself became an eternal mix of day and night. The buildings, too, were but a blink of an eye. The traveling time traveler watched the towers rise and fall, settlements come and go. As the only thing constant, the earth slowly warped and grew and fell. That's when he noticed something troubling, well, more troubling than the existential dread that accompanies the idea of all human civilization as just a fragile and fleeting thing. The traveler began to see the earth fall away. What did he think would happen by traveling through time anyway? He thought to himself. He apparently hadn't considered far enough into the future, certainly not far enough to where even the earth itself might change. Surely he could just ride with it. He was wrong. 
In the haze of the fog, rain, snow, and sun that constantly surrounded him, he ended up losing sight of the land completely. He realized that, unlike everything around him, he was a fixed point in time. He was unchanging. That is, until he wanted to stop. He had watched the earth drop farther and farther away until it was out of sight. He had to reverse course and head back home. He had done enough. The time traveler pulled back the throttle and he stopped. Hard. Instantly, it was night and thunder clapped above him. Hail stung his hands. Taken hugely by surprise, he didn't think to immediately pull back on the lever and return to the 1890s. By the time he came to his senses enough to regain control, it was too late. With a crash, the time machine thudded onto the ground. Pelted with rain and stung by hail, the traveler crawled out from under his machine. At least he could still walk. He knelt down in the darkness, filling in the scene by touch while his eyes struggled to adjust amid the shadows. The machine appeared to be upside down, and at least one of the nickel rods was bent. Oh, and he realized he was also messing up someone's flower garden, though that point concerned him considerably less. That's because what did concern him was the giant looming face materializing from the haze of the hailstorm. We'll learn what lurks in the world of the future, but that will be right after this. This week's episode is brought to you by Cults, the new podcast called Cults, not actual cults. You've probably heard of it. It's about cults, mystery, murder, manipulation. Cults are associated with all of these, but what really goes on inside a cult? And more specifically, what's the psychology behind cults? And what goes on inside the minds of the people who join them and the people who start them? Cults answers all those questions and more. Each episode looks at the biological profile of the cult's leader or leaders and how people can be manipulated or persuaded into not only joining one, but committing horrible crimes. The hosts analyze evidence, bring little known facts to light, and it even has real audio tapes from leaders and members. There are episodes out on the Manson family and Heaven's Gate now, and they come out every Tuesday. Visit Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts and search for Cults. Again, that's C-U-L-T-S. Or visit Parcast.com slash Cults to start listening now. That's Parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash Cults to listen now. All right, now back to the show. It took a few minutes of the storm clearing and the traveler cowering in terror to realize that the face wasn't that of a living thing, but of a statue. It was a massive marble sphinx, so large that the top of a full-grown birch tree reached no higher than its shoulder. The sphinx statue crouched in place, wings spread toward the sky. Rather than being struck by its beauty, the traveler was, on some level, revolted by the thing. It had a malaise about it, the feeling of disease and its carved, dead eyes seemed to watch him. Then, the time traveler looked at his dials, and he was hit by a deep, disquieting uneasiness. His machine had worked. He was at the location of his lab, just, according to his dials, over 800,000 years in the future. The oldest written human stories were only 5,000 years old. And look how much the world had changed in that time. He had gone 160 times that long into the future. This garden of rhododendrons aside, this world could be starkly different. An infinitely more dangerous place. Who knew what the humans would be like now? Or even if there would be humans anymore? 
The theory of evolution was just becoming a thing in his time. What if people had changed? What if they had become so advanced that, to them, he would seem like some Neanderthal brute, some monster that they would kill without a thought? Or what if it had gone in the other direction? What if mankind had embraced and lauded their darker instincts? What if he was in a world of murderous monsters? The what-if scenarios were endless. A chill ran down his spine as the mysterious marble sphinx stared on. As the air grew humid following the rain, the time traveler rushed over to his crash machine, desperately trying to write it. The traveler decided he'd feel better with it upright and functional. So no matter what dangers the new world presented, he could at least jump back into the machine, pull back on the lever, and return home in quite literally no time at all. Also, he should really look into getting a roll cage or some wheels or something. This thing was heavy. The contraption slammed back into position right side up, and the traveler climbed aboard, powering it up and putting his hand on the lever, ready to return to the 1890s. He paused for one last look around. The storm had stopped, the sun had risen, and in the haze of the morning, he could see not just the looming face of the Sphinx, but the white towers all around him, coming into focus as the sun hit them. He relaxed and breathed the sweet morning air and took his hand from the throttle. He hadn't crashed in the only garden, either. Before every tower were the most beautiful flowers he had ever seen. That was when the traveler noticed the heads. Slowly, heads and shoulders began popping up over the parapets of each tower, and from behind the trees and bushes surrounding the Sphinx. The traveler's hand shot to the throttle as he watched the inhabitants of this world disappear into their towers and then pour out of the buildings. Then he relaxed. As they approached, he got a sense of scale. They were only about four feet tall, and even though they were proportioned like humans, they seemed to be extremely frail. They didn't appear to have any weapons, and if it did come to a fight... It would be like fighting not just a normal human five-year-old, but like an extremely weak five-year-old. The traveler liked his odds and, once again, removed his hand from the throttle. The inhabitants walked toward him, their faces beaming with a happiness that was completely devoid of anxiety or fear. There was something pure about their happiness, a childlike ease. The first one to reach the machine was male, the traveler guessed. They were all fairly androgynous, both the males and the females having pinkish skin and curly hair that stopped at the neck and face. They wore tunics and sandals or buskins and they had absolutely no fear of a man who was a foot and a half taller than them, wearing strange clothes and appearing out of nowhere in a giant metal monster. In fact, the first one who approached him looked him square in the face and laughed. The traveler noted that even their laughter was graceful and dignified and though he couldn't understand their language in the least, it was sing-songy and beautiful, free of spitting or guttural noises or plosives. It was like listening to the most beautiful poetry he didn't understand at all. And so, he tried to speak to them, to tell them that he was a traveler from another time. But then, he found himself quite off track, trying to mine the abstractions of time travel. In doing so, he noticed two things. One, the creatures winced at the sound of his voice. To them, it was deep and harsh and terrible, like nails on a chalkboard if those nails were also trying to explain quantum physics to you. The second thing that he noticed was that they didn't care. At all. The inhabitants swarmed him, but seeing as he could accidentally break one of them by simply turning around too fast, they gave him a wide berth. Until they didn't. On realization that he had come in peace, they just had to touch him. 
The traveler described their little pink fingers as feeling like tentacles, and they climbed atop his machine and felt his back, shoulders, hair, and face. Yet, for some reason, he was completely cool with this, probably because he knew he could fling them around like they weighed nothing at all. Seriously, just looking at them funny might break them. It was all wonder and awe, until he turned, gasping as he remembered the time machine was still powered on, and now these creatures were climbing all over it. Worse, one was poking around by the throttle, about to wrap his little pink fingers around it. The traveler dove, careening toward his invention slash getaway car. More than a few of the creatures that had been massaging his strange scalp tumbled to the ground, but he reached the controls just in time. Maybe it would be best to power down the machine. For extra security, he unscrewed the levers that controlled the machine and dropped them into his pocket. Now, he could explore assured that his way home wasn't going anywhere without him. Turning to the people, things, the traveler pretended to be unable to speak, which was accurate enough, so he resumed gesturing about time, the sun, and dropping down out of the sky. The pinkish creatures gave him a knowing nod. Ah, yes, they understood. One, in a checkered pink and white tunic, made the sound of thunder and pointed to the sky, and then to the time machine. The strange sky man had obviously dropped in from the thunderstorm. The time traveler gestured, yes, of course, wait, what? No, no, that's ridiculous. But it didn't matter. The little guy was already explaining to all the other little guys that this was, in fact, what had happened. Thunderstorms produced giant flying men and metal machines now. Mystery solved. The time traveler tried to explain the intricacies of time travel and how storms worked in gestures. But even if that wasn't impossibly difficult, it wouldn't have mattered. The tiny creatures, their fleeting curiosity sated by the easiest, most apparent, though incorrect answer, had already moved on to a flower party. A few came out of the crowd with a necklace made of flowers and, climbing atop the machine podium, placed it around the traveler's neck. They all, then, danced around flinging flowers at the stranger until he was just a pile of flowers with a deeply concerned face poking out of it. He was shocked. The Traveler had grown up during the Industrial Revolution and after the Enlightenment. The world had changed so much in just a few decades he experienced back in his own time. He could only assume that the progress would continue. When he not so gracefully landed in the year 800,000 something, he feared that he would be seen as a senseless brute. But these, these things, they were like children. But even children were curious. A man had come from another time. They were content to think that the lightning made him so that they could get on with their flower dance party. Something, somewhere, in humanity's timeline, had gone very wrong. The traveler stood covered in flowers, contemplating the future of humanity, when he felt a tentacle-like hand wrap around his own. He looked down, and the pinkish creature smiled. The crowd was moving, and she wanted him to come with them. The traveler shrugged and looked on. They were all walking past the marble sphinx, the statue had seemed so threatening to him when he first landed in the dark. Now, its gaze and its sneer seemed to mock him. The traveler followed the crowd of little pinkish people. He could fall and crush three of them by accident. He sighed. There was no mystery, no danger. The world was a utopia and completely unchallenged. These creatures were the products of humanity's innate desire for leisure, pleasure, and easy answers.
creatures obviously lived by the boundless providence of their more ambitious ancestors. The buildings were intricate and beautiful, though it was starting to show its age and the way certain parts were weather-worn. Still, whoever had built it had made it to last, even without the knowledge of their progeny's extreme disregard for anything resembling work. Despite a few areas beginning to break down, it would still be centuries before it crumbled. It was like a ship set adrift in the ocean. These people didn't know how or why everything worked, just that it did. Above them were magnificent gardens, eternally in bloom and weedless. They must have been like this for generations. When he entered the main hall, it was perfectly suited to allow light in, without the use of lanterns or torches, and the metal floor was so worn by daily comings and goings of generations that deep grooves were starting to form. A long table sat in the middle of the hall, plates at the center laden with fruit. He refused. He wasn't hungry yet. He had just eaten breakfast 800,000 years ago. The little pink creatures shrugged and tossed their peels and rinds into holes on either sides of the table, enjoying their unearned breakfast. As they grazed, the traveler wandered out the sunlit door to take in the mountain view on the horizon, thinking that it would be a great idea to undertake a dangerous and arduous hike that would only further separate him from his one lifeline back to his own time the traveler set off as well-prepared as any 1890s gentleman scientist is for a mountain trek, which, if you're wondering, is not very. He was the passing curiosity of several groups of people, but their legs being shorter and walking being just so difficult, they decided to let him go on his mountain hike, and they would just go on being distracted by whatever colorful object happened to drift into their field of view. As the traveler crested the top of a hill, he stumbled upon a metal griffin throne at the peak, the type that we all find all the time in the wild. Sighing, he collapsed into the chair, surveying the landscape, the various palaces, some dilapidated, some surrounded by little pink dots of the people, the solution for the state of humanity slid into place. Communism. Of course, the current state of humanity was brought about because communism had become widely adopted by humanity at large. Free from necessity, men became like women, women became like men, the nuclear family had collapsed into the state, dogs and cats that started living together out of wedlock, you name it. The only problem? It worked. Communism had worked. At first, at least. Society boomed. Science continued to advance at a breakneck pace, and things became more and more automated. As that happened, life became easy, and people became lazy. They did the bare minimum, and, free from having to work, became weak and small. Free from the incentives for intellectual development, they had grown simple and easily distracted. The state had assumed all of their needs. But with the state having collapsed apparently long ago, they were also aimless, rudderless, humanity on the wane, like a doomed ship that can only go a bit farther before it sinks. Oh well, the traveler said to himself. I guess we had a good run. Still, if humanity had to go out, going out as a victim of its own success wasn't really a bad way. The people didn't have to work. Whatever machinery farmed for them was automatic. He watched the sun start to set over the world of palaces and gardens, the human remnants singing and dancing in the night. They were without hope and progress, of course, but they were also without fear or hate. They had succeeded in subjugating the natural world and automating everything. And humanity would die, yes, but it would be after a long rest on its laurels. Well, by now it was getting dark. So the traveler stood and picked out the white sphinx, already starting to glow in the moonlight, to find his way back to his machine, and back home. Hmm, 
That can't be right, he thought to himself, noticing that the lawn around the statue was empty. Huh, wrong sphinx. He turned and surveyed the rest of the horizon, but there wasn't another one to be found. That sphinx was the one he had landed by, which meant his machine was gone. His mind raced as he bounded down the mountain, gripping the levers in his pocket. He couldn't be moved by starting it, and the little pink people would need an army and a non-trivial amount of levers and pulleys to move it if they even cared about it, which they didn't. As he rushed toward the empty lawn, he could only think of one solution. Something else lurked in this world. The time traveler had been making many poor decisions. The night he discovered his time machine had been moved or stolen, he raced down the mountain and burst into the palace where the little pink people were sleeping. They were less than helpful, shouting at them in a language they didn't understand about a device they couldn't comprehend. The traveler learned very quickly that the little guys could, in fact, still feel fear. Now completely beside himself with panic, he exited the room as fast as he could, apologizing with every step. He really was trying to be careful, but with every move, he accidentally kneed one of the creatures, sending them flying in all directions. The traveler slumped onto the lawn, in exactly the same place as his time machine was supposed to be, weary from his 798,000-year-long day. In retrospect, waking them by screaming threats was not a productive move. Perhaps a little sleep would help. He awoke with a start, remembering that he had taken the time machine to 800,000 AD, and subsequently lost said time machine in 800,000 AD. Maybe, if he ever made it home, a redesign was in order. Something simple and sturdy, one that would blend him back home, but not be too appealing to tiny pink hands. Something like those new police call boxes popping up all over Britain. Regardless, he had to get home first. There were only two things that could have happened. It was either destroyed, or it had been taken. If it was the former, then he better get to work learning the local language and delving into ruins of civilization to find components to build another. If it was the latter, then he better get to work finding it. But where could it be? Above him loomed the marble sphinx, still staring down and sneered at him like always. Its base was made of bronze, but what was that? It looked like it had two doors, set invisibly in the side. After an hour and a half of banging on the base with fists, sticks, and stones, he was ready to give up. That's when a couple of the pink creatures came to chuckle at his failure. In his frustration, he grabbed a young man in an orange tunic and was about to bang him against the door for a bit, but relented when the thing started crying. He was so tired of these pink people and the fact that they didn't seem to care about anything. Making no progress with the Sphinx, the traveler went and swiped some fruit from the pink person palace and sat down by the river. Of course, pink people were there too, playing and dancing in the river. And that's when the traveler noticed one, a young woman, get a cramp and dip below the water. He took a bite of his fruit and looked back at the others, who heard the woman's screams as she was trying to come up for air, but only laughed and danced in rhythm with the screams. Is, is anyone going to get that? Really? I'm not the only one here in this, right? The traveler said with an eye roll. The little pink people definitely knew about the drowning woman, but couldn't be bothered to stop playing so as to try and rescue her. <sighs> Fine. I'll save her. I hate you guys so much. It really doesn't matter what I say because you can't understand me and don't care at all, but try not to be dumb in the future. 
though that's impossible because you're you. Okay, bye, the time traveler said to the shivering little pink woman. Exasperated, he turned to begin another one of his walks in search of his precious time machine and answers to this new world. He guessed that the machinery keeping this place going, put in place by the much more intelligent ancestors whose descendants had turned pink and stupid, must be hidden underground. And it must take a lot to cool them, too, because every so often, the traveler came across a giant, bronze, silo-like structure, sucking air down below the surface. Recalling that everyone had tossed their fruit waste into the holes in the main hall, possibly to be recycled for farming purposes, he guessed that this was where society threw its dead as well. After all, there weren't any cemeteries or tombs or anything, just long stretches of nature and somewhat dilapidated palaces as far as the eye could see. That night, he returned to the Sphinx statue and to the palace, already used to the pink creatures avoiding him after his recent and threatening outbursts. Most scurried from his path and away from his vicinity completely, except for one. In a rare show of boldness, a lone creature met his eyes, emerging from the palace upon the traveler's arrival. It turned out to be the very pink person he had saved earlier that day. She looked up at him with a smile and a necklace made of flowers. The traveler sighed. He may have grown to hate these little things, but he was touched that one actually seemed to notice something from the world around her and hold a thought in her head for more than 20 seconds, unlike all the others. He bent down and accepted the necklace. She took his hand and sat him down to talk. Or as close to talking as two people could. It was mainly the traveler trying to learn their language, punctuated by smiles and laughter. He was able to suss out her name, Weena, as well as the name of her people, the Eloi. That's really the best he could do, and he said goodnight, as the Eloi settled down to sleep in their little dwelling, and the traveler found a soft spot on the grass. In the early morning hours, the time traveler felt a tentacle-like finger on his face, before he even opened his eyes. Already, he knew who it was, Weena. He cracked his eyes and gave her a polite smile. And, oh good, she's following me, he thought as he trudged to the palace to snag breakfast before heading out for the day. It was hard to ignore her stare as he scarfed down the fruit and went about his day. He heard her little footsteps as he walked farther and farther from the Sphinx and, every now and then, would glance behind him to see her following along as quickly as she could. She followed him all the way out into the wilds of future Great Britain. And by this time, he had another plan. Tire her out by walking this far and leave her. He had the time machine to find, and entertaining a little companion was just not something he could afford to waste time on. It happened sometime around noon, when the traveler saw Weena stop for rest. Tired himself, he pressed on. He tried to ignore her little screams. Ugh, why did she have to protest so much about being left alone to probably die in the wilderness? Even when she was out of earshot, her shrieks still echoed through his mind until, relenting, he turned around and huffed back to her. You could take the Weena from the Eloi, but you couldn't take the Eloi from Weena. Instead of trying to solve her problem, she had sat there crying about it. Still, the traveler did have to admire her persistence. She had followed him this far, and so he would help her. He scooped her up and put her frail body on his back for the trek back to her home. The traveler silently cursed himself as he began to welcome the familiar sight of the Sphinx over the horizon. He shook his head and tried to dislodge the thought. No, he had only been here for a few days. This wasn't his home. These weren't his people. 
he needed to find a way back to the 1800s. Despite his best efforts, the disgust at the thought of the Sphinx feeling like home and him coming to like the Eloi began to fade. There will be a joy when he crested the hill on his long walks in the next couple of days, when he would see the Sphinx and Weena waiting for him. His feelings grew as the mystery of the world deepened. As time passed, he began investigating the metal silos, sucking air underground. Their deep and distant drumming, oddly arrhythmic. He assumed it had to be machinery down there, and was enough of a man of science to know that the technology in this age, though ancient to its inhabitants, would likely far surpass anything he was used to in 1890s Britain. But technology still didn't explain the ghosts. One night, the traveler thought he heard sounds coming from the palace where the Eloi slept. They all slept together, and as soon as night fell, they refused to be out of doors. Even Weena. They slept in a big mass of Eloi. No little pink person slept on their own. In the dark, and barely cognizant that he was awake, the traveler heard and saw something from the palace of the Eloi. A white blur ran out into the darkness. The traveler blinked and sat up. That was weird. He put on his shoes and rushed into the direction of the blur, and looking down the hill, he saw several white forms moving in the darkness, each carrying something before they disappeared into the bushes by one of the structures. Even though you might not have guessed it by the fact that he had inadvertently stranded himself into the future on the very first trip, the traveler did possess some level of common sense and knew not to follow ghostly forms into unknown places. Well, not at night at least. He watched the sun rise and waited for Weena to come out of the palace. Eventually she did, although the blithe and ignorant extreme happiness and playfulness that constituted the baseline mood of the Eloi was tinged with melancholy that morning. Her smiles were fleeting, punctuated by moments of fear, as if she were trying to hold on to a memory or feeling. By midday, it was gone, though that night she didn't want to sleep in the palace with the rest of the Eloi, preferring instead to sleep curled up on the arm of the traveler. The time traveler wiped his brow, he had long since given up walking around in a wool coat. For some reason in the last 800,000 years, the globe had warmed somehow. Who knew how that could have happened? The area that used to be London now felt like the tropics. Being without a change of clothes, the traveler was unsurprisingly soaked through. He also didn't have any way of carrying water with him, and he knew he had to evade the sun during the heat of the day. There were ruins all around him, and as he walked by one, he felt a rush of cool air and remembered the silos sucking the air under the ground to cool the machinery of the Eloi. He paused in his tracks, studying the ruins, and noticed that one of the pillars nearby had collapsed, exposing the wide, yawning darkness of the Eloi subterranean world. If he had been traveling around in the 1890s, he would not have really considered something like this. Well, he wouldn't be walking alone in a strange land, but this was different. He was walking in a world where humanity had subdued nature, and then, in turn, was subdued by their own victory. In his walks, he hadn't seen anything other than birds and squirrels. Walking into the darkness, just inside the door, to bask in the cool air, the traveler could hear the arrhythmic thumping of the machines, even clearer than before. This world was a tomb, a ghost ship. There was no danger, no intrigue, nothing lurked below, except the forgotten dreams from a better time. That was when the traveler saw the eyes.
we'll learn what's crawling in the darkness of the world of 800,000-something AD when we finish up the time machine next time. Real quickly, if you like the show, tell a friend. It's also really helpful if you want to review it on Apple Podcasts. You can find the show there at apple.fictional.fm. Now, it's time for the best of the worst. The villain this time is Clifford F. Michaels, a man not at all better known by his criminal alias, Turner D. Century. Yes. Sporting a handlebar mustache, pinstripe suit and a boater hat, apparently summer clothes worn by a man in the year 1900, Turner D. Century is obsessed with the first decade of the 20th century. Century loves it so much that he rides around on his rocket bicycle, didn't know those were popular in the year 1900, and burns down anything resembling what he believes to be denigrating social norms, like disco clubs. And he also stops off at Chinatown because he's super racist. He was raised by millionaire industrialist Morgan McNeil Hardy. Well, raised is a generous term. Turner D. Century's father, the millionaire chauffeur, died. So the millionaire took him in. The old man had the opinion that progressive change was a blight on society, so he tried to spark a social movement to go back to the good old days. As it turns out, the good old days were only good for bigoted millionaires, because no one else was really into going back to that time. His movement having failed, he went underground with another plan. That was when he took in the boy who would come to not really be known as Turner D. Century. The boy watched as the millionaire constructed an entire town under his estate, filled with wax people in period-appropriate clothing. There, they sat cloistered in an idealized past. Turns out warping a child's mind to believe that everything about modern society is degenerate and corrupt leads to that child making some questionable life choices, like murder. Turner D. Century thought that he could take back society, so he roamed the streets of San Francisco and later New York on his rocket bicycle, burning down buildings. His first crime spree was thwarted by Spider-Woman. The artificial town burned down, and he along with the 90-year-old millionaire, were presumed dead. But he wasn't. Seeing that his craziness led him to accidentally burning down his own house and killing his father figure, he decided that his issue was that he didn't go big enough. So he put a horn on his rocket bicycle and headed east. The horn emitted a frequency that would instantly kill anyone under the age of 65, so he could remake the world in the image of their childhood, a time when people were decent to each other, and the world made sense the 1930s and 40s. In addition to getting completely owned by an additional hero over the age of 65, who informed him that he shouldn't idealize elderly people as paragons of virtue because, well, they're just people too, Turner D. Century's ability to develop weapons was about as great as his style choices, because the weapon did not work at all. Instead of killing Spider-Man, the other hero he faced this time, it just knocked him out for a few seconds. A favor Spider-Man returned when he caught up to Turner D. Century's rocket bicycle. I, personally, look forward to the 21st century version of Trinity Century, with his frosted tips, popped collar, and Livestrong bracelet, all while riding around on a rocket razor scooter. Thank you so much for listening. Today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and edited and produced by Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the amazing Breakmaster Cylinder, and there are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Okay, so this is me again, but a different me than the one you just heard. If you like that episode, 
and I'm assuming you did since you just listened to the whole thing, you can find the rest of the story by following the link in the show notes, going to fictional.fm, or just searching for fictional wherever you get your podcasts.